For the past few weeks, we've been walking through the book of John in our series called Sharing Life Like Christ. So we've been looking at specific interactions that Jesus has had with people um, and allowing these interactions to inform the way we interact with Jesus and how he wants to interact with others through us. And so we've said before that when you share life in Christ, you'll share life like Christ. And that's exactly what we've already seen through Christ's interactions with his disciples. Right? We've seen how Jesus uh, called Andrew and John, and then how Andrew brought his brother Simon to Jesus, and then how Jesus called Philip to follow him, and then how Philip invited Nathaniel to come and see and meet Jesus, right? And then we've looked at the way that Jesus revealed himself to each one of them in a very radical and very personal way. And so this morning, we're going to look at another interaction between Jesus and a man named Nicodemus. And this takes place in John chapter 3, verse 1 through 18. Now, this interaction actually contains one of, if not the most famous Bible passage uh, ever, right? Um, You see this stuff at football games and signs. If you drive through the south, you'll see it on, like, pine trees, Maybe that's just North Carolina, but you just see John 3.16, right? And some people think, like, that's like a symbol for something, and it's actually a verse. It's a scripture, right? John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So we're definitely going to dive into what Jesus is saying here. But I want you to see the greater context of the conversation surrounding that passage. Because when you do, you're going to see that this statement is about more than just belief. It's about total rebirth. And so I want you to see how Jesus interacts with our own hearts in this and how he desires to interact through us with the world around us. So we're going to walk through this passage, verse 1 through 18, and then i got three takeaways for you sort of as we go through it. So here's what I want you to get this morning, though, ultimately. If you get nothing else from this, here's what I want you to get. Redemption doesn't come through religion. It comes through rebirth. In order to see and receive Christ for who he is, you must be born again. Redemption doesn't come through religion. It comes through rebirth. In order to see and receive Christ for who he is. Not just who you want him to be or who you think he is. But who he really is. You must be born again. So we all tend to approach Jesus with our own ideas about who he is or even who we want him to be. Right? Like, it's easy to set up a plastic Jesus made in our own image and then try to approach him on our terms rather than his terms for who he is. And then when that plastic fantasy Jesus inevitably fails us, which it will, we then dismiss the whole concept and idea of Jesus altogether. And then anything that is remotely close to Jesus, we just dismiss. So this morning, I want to look at this interaction between Jesus and Nicodemus, where Jesus doesn't even let Nicodemus put him in the straw house of his own making. He doesn't even allow it. 
Instead, Jesus actually flips Nicodemus' worldview completely upside down, and he invites him to engage on God's terms, not his own terms. So this is the only way any of us can actually truly receive Christ. It's the only way we can even see his kingdom. He's calling us all to lay down our presuppositions about who Jesus is and see him for who he truly is, who he says he is. But in order to even see him for who he is and understand his ways, we got to be born again. Turn with me to John 3. Look at verse 1. It says this. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So we're introduced here to a man named Nicodemus, and we're told that he's a Pharisee, or even a ruler of the Jews, right? So he would have been an extremely successful man. Like he would have been seen by everyone around him as this kind of person who has all the answers, right? In fact, their their entire society would have rested upon the opinions of these kinds of teachers of God's law. So Nicodemus would have been seen as and and probably a very disciplined, high-achievement-oriented, highly-respected, high-status individual. In verse 10, Jesus even refers to him as a teacher of Israel, which means he was probably a high-ranking member of the Sanhedrin and a preeminent authority, a ruler of the Jews. As I said, many would have looked at him in order to understand the world around them. So when Jesus suddenly shows up in chapter 2, the chapter before this, and he starts turning tables over in the temple, and he's causing a scene, which is what happened in chapter 2, the people would have looked to the Pharisees like Nicodemus for whether or not Jesus' actions were legitimate. In fact, John 2.23 even says that many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Verse 24, John 2 says this, But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and he needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. In other words, Jesus, being God, knew what was in their hearts. And so he didn't entrust himself to people that were just looking for signs or miracles to justify their own opinions about who he was and come up with their own plastic Jesus. Many of them did that all the time. Because signs and wonders, hear this, signs and wonders don't necessarily lead to relationship. Often they lead to a sort of transactional religion. As long as these amazing things are happening in my life, I'll follow. But when these things get boring or don't go the way I want, I'm out. Back to my old ways. Simply believing Jesus is powerful does not make you a Christian. Lots of people believe in the power of Jesus. Even the demons believe in the power of Jesus. I believe in the power of Jesus. I believe in signs and wonders and miracles and healings and the whole gauntlet. 100%. Let's go. Right? 
<laughs> Nicodemus believes that Jesus is a teacher from God because of the signs. But what we're about to see here is that that's not enough. He's more than just a teacher from God. He's more than just a miracle worker. He is God. But Nicodemus can't see that yet. He's approaching Jesus on his own terms. Like he may even be expecting Jesus to appreciate his affirmations here that he is a teacher from God. As if Jesus needs Nicodemus' approval. Follow this. Remember, Nicodemus thinks he's the judge here. Nicodemus thinks that Jesus is the one on trial to be assessed by his own great and lofty opinion. Nicodemus has his role with Jesus swapped. How often, man, like, how often do we sit on Christ's throne as if we are his judge? And how often is this the way the world approaches Jesus? Well, we're about to see how Jesus responds to this kind of approach. And honestly, it's pretty merciful. Notice that John tells us that Nicodemus came to Jesus at night. That's significant. Some say that he comes to Jesus at night because he's afraid of what other people are going to think of him. And, and there's like a hypocrisy going on here or like a double life that he's leading. And that may be true. Maybe, maybe. I don't know. But throughout the book of John, night is actually used to symbolize ignorance or confusion. In every instance. In other words, Nicodemus is in the dark here. Right? He's in the dark and he's trying to meet Jesus. He's confused and he's trying to meet Jesus on his own terms. Ultimately, Nicodemus is in the dark and yet he's approaching the light of the world. It's what makes this interaction so amazing. C.S. Lewis once famously wrote, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. That's who he's coming to. He's not only coming to the sun, S-O-N, he's coming to the sun, S-U-N, right? The light of the world. Nicodemus is now interacting with the source of light and life himself. He's a man who believes in the inspiration of God, God's word, and yet he's still blind and in the dark. Like all of his study and all of his experience has still left him just groping in the dark. Like he believes in the inspiration of God's word in the Bible and he studies it. But what he needs is the illumination of God's spirit in order to even know how to understand and apply his word. Some of you have been there. Some of you may be there now. I pray that that changes this morning. Because what Nicodemus needs is total rebirth to be born again. Look at verse 3. So Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, in other words, pay attention. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. This is a radical statement. Like just like he flipped the tables over in the temple, just before this, the chapter before this, Jesus has totally turned the tables on Nicodemus right here. 
Right? He's saying, all you think you know, all your presuppositions and assumptions and opinions about me and the world around you don't just need to be kind of tweaked a little bit. He's saying they need a total overhaul. It's the only way we can come to Christ. Like He's not saying, wow, Nicodemus, you're so close to understanding who God is. He doesn't say, you're almost there. You just need to work a little harder, achieve a little more, be a little more disciplined. Like Jesus doesn't say, unless one tries really hard, he cannot see the kingdom of God, right? Like he doesn't say, unless, one, unless one's good deeds outweigh their bad deeds, they cannot see the kingdom of God. That's not what he says. He doesn't even say, unless one lets God fix their character flaws, they cannot see the kingdom of God. That's not what he says. He says, unless they're born again. They cannot see the kingdom of God. And yes, that's as radical and fundamentally all-encompassing as it sounds. Look, remember, Jesus is speaking to one of the most religiously successful people in their society. Like This guy most assumed was the closest person to God. In their society, he would have been, like, comparably to everyone else, like, right next to God. And maybe he was comparably. But Jesus still says even he, teacher of Israel, need to be born again. This is a radical statement about the extreme need for total renewal for every heart. Like it's not about becoming a better version of yourself. It's about becoming an entirely new person altogether. Just in case you're wondering whether he needs to be born again, Nicodemus validates it by showing just how in the dark he actually is. Look at verse 4. Nicodemus said to him, how how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. And so Nicodemus proves here that he doesn't get it. Like, he's completely myopic in his understanding of existence. He doesn't even seem to have a category for spiritual things here. There's no real illumination even into what the scriptures are teaching, even though he is to be the teacher of Israel. And so claiming to be wise, he's become a fool. It truly is the blind simply leading the blind. And so Jesus begins to illuminate things for him here. And he says, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So what's he talking about? What's he talking about there? Some have said that water here represents natural birth and that the spirit represents spiritual birth. Okay? And sure, like I think that there's some validity to that. Sure, absolutely. Like, however... This is actually also a direct reference to Ezekiel 36 in the Old Testament, where God tells Israel that they have profaned his name before the nations, but that he's one day going to vindicate the holiness of his great name. And he's going to do it by gathering his people from all over the world. And then in Ezekiel 36, verse 25, he says this, I will sprinkle clean water on you. And you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. 
And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, a new one. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So let's let scripture interpret scripture here, right? What does it mean to be born of water? Well, it means to be cleansed of your uncleannesses or unrighteousness. But God doesn't just leave it at that, right? He takes it a huge step further, saying unless you're born of water and born of the Spirit, you can't enter the kingdom of God. So if to be born of water means cleansing, then to be born of the Spirit is to be entirely recreated. And we're actually given the full picture of Christ's mission on on the earth here. Like, it's not enough to just be cleansed. Even to be cleansed of sin still means your heart, your inside, is filthy. If your external is washed, your internal still got issues. (laughs) Right? You may wash the outside, but inside things are pretty jacked up. Right? It's like when people are like, well, you know, I, I got to keep taking communion. I got to keep going to the priest or whatever. And, then, and if I don't confess my sin and get clean, then I'll be dirty. Because you, 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 it's all external. You see this? It's all external. You're just washing the outside. You need to be cleaned on the inside. Because ultimately, you're just going to live in that cycle. You see? The idea here is that you need a new heart, new motives, new desires, and new affections. You need to be recreated, reborn. This is what 2 Corinthians 5.17 is talking about. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. It doesn't mean that you're not going to struggle with sin. It means you're no longer identified by it, and you have a heart that doesn't want it. That's why, as Pastor Dave just said, right, we struggle with it because we don't want it. You see that? And we can rest in our salvation. This is what Ephesians 2 verse 4 through 6 is talking about when it says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. It's total rebirth. This is what it means to be born again. Now, I'm not entirely sure what Nicodemus was expecting from Jesus, but I don't think it was this. Right? Like, look at verse 7. He says, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Now, it's important to note here that when he says, you must be born again, it's actually a plural, not a singular. So, in other words, he's talking about everybody. He's not just talking about Nicodemus. He's not like, well, you know, you're like a religious nut, and so you need to be born again. But this person over here, they're close. Right? He's talking about the, the sweet soccer mom who hands out the snacks after every game. She needs to be born again. She, he's talking about the, your neighbor who lives a quiet, comfortable life without causing much of a stir. He's a great neighbor, but needs to be born again. 
Like he's talking about your barista at the coffee shop and the waitress at your favorite restaurant. He's talking about your accountant and your children's classmates. He's talking about the people sitting in their cars at the spotlight, spotlight, stoplight. Sometimes I feel like God puts a spotlight on them and he's like, pray for them. Right? Like, I, seriously, this is the, these are the lenses that I think God wants us to have. Everybody needs to be born again. Everybody. Right? All of them. It doesn't matter how sweet or kind or politically correct or not they are. They must all be born again. Look at verse 8. Like follow the pattern here. Follow the language Jesus uses. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So Jesus is actually talking about the Holy Spirit here. Again and again and again, all through this, he's talking about the Holy Spirit. In fact, both the Hebrew and Greek words for for Holy Spirit are also the words used for breath and wind. So if you were to hear this in the original language, it would be just over and over and over and over again. Okay? And Jesus actually continues this biblical throwback to that passage in Ezekiel. And he calls on a prophetic vision of the Valley of Dry Bones, which happens in Ezekiel 37. Right? Like, listen to this. Listen to this. This is, I, this is one of the most powerful prophetic images. Ezekiel has this image. Right after he said that, that we just read in Ezekiel uh, 36, Ezekiel 37, verse 1, opens with this. and says, The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord, and he set me down in the middle of the valley, and it was full of bones. Use your imagination here. It's about to get real. And he led me around among them as though a battle has taken place and they're all dead. Right? He's walking among them. And behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley. And behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, oh, Lord God, you know. In other words, I trust you. What do I know? Right? Then he said to me, prophesy over these bones. And say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live. And you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I spoke, as I prophesied, There was a sound, and behold, a rattling. And the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them. And flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them. But there was no breath in them. They had the appearance of godliness. But there was no power there. See this? There was no breath. They're still dead. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Armies have a mission. Armies have a purpose. This was an Old Testament vision of the New Testament church. 
And the imagery is clear. In order to come to life, in order to inherit the kingdom of heaven, you must be born again of the Spirit. Otherwise, you're still just as dead. Like some may have the appearance of life, but without the Spirit, you've denied its power. Dead is dead. Dry bones or not, dead is dead. Another term for empty religion in the Bible is whitewashed tombs. Nicodemus needs to be born again. Back to John 3, verse 9. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? No doubt he's remembering a lot of this stuff because Jesus' language is clear. Nicodemus was a smart guy, even though it doesn't seem like it right now. So he says, how can these things be? Remember, he doesn't have a category for what Jesus is talking about. He's so wrapped up in his own pride that he thinks he's had it all figured out. Like he thought he was the judge coming to discern and approve Jesus. And now the tables are completely flipped on him. The way up is down and the way down is up. You kind of feel like the lights are coming on in his realization here, and he starts to let go of his pride a bit. But now confusion is starting to set in. And this is often what it's like when people encounter Jesus for the first time, right? Everything he thought he knew was totally upended by this encounter. And it scared him. Verse 10, or at least confused him, but I think scared him. Verse 10, Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Now, I want you to think real quick about how this would have landed with Nicodemus. Remember, the reality is that Jesus is the truth incarnate. Truth is a person. Like, he doesn't need any other proof to substantiate himself. Catch this, because I want you to think about this when you're interacting with other people, right? The way Jesus interacts with Nicodemus is going to inform the way he interacts with others through you, okay? So remember this. Truth is a person. He doesn't need any other proof to substantiate himself. Everything else is actually substantiated by him because it all comes from him. He is the judge. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the corroboration of all that is true and real and good. He needs no one else to authenticate or verify him. We're all substantiated, authenticated, and verified by him. His testimony is enough because it's rooted in the very source of creation. Everything else in creation only truly makes sense in light of him. Like, this is why the good news or the gospel of Jesus Christ is itself the power unto salvation. That's what it talks about in Romans. Like, I've learned over the years not to get sucked into the world's misdirections and play their games. Right? We, I told you it was going to be a theme, and it's definitely happening right here. Because Nicodemus is full of misdirection. Our world is full of misguided and twisted rules. False paradigms and arguments based on shifting sand and misdirection. Like, in fact, the reason people say you can't prove God exists is because in order to prove something, you have to, something, you have, to have something more trustworthy by which to corroborate its reality. But there isn't anything more trustworthy than God himself. 
The need to look beyond him is itself evidence that you're suppressing the most fundamental reality in the universe. He's real. He's the most real. But you can't prove God because God is himself the ultimate substance of truth by which everything else is verified and corroborated. Might be the only people following me right now are attorneys. There is no higher proof. There is no higher proof than Jesus himself. He is the ultimate real. All that exists finds its verification in him, not the other way around. We've got a role swapped. If he's not real, nothing is because he spoke it all into existence and holds it all together with a word. To reject his words is to turn away from truth and life itself. Now you might say, then how do people start to believe? Well, they stop suppressing the truth. They step off God's throne and surrender to what they've always known deep down. You must have this understanding when you're in conversation with people. Jesus doesn't need to be verified, judged, or authenticated by Nicodemus. Nicodemus needs to be justified by Jesus. And for that to happen, he must be born again. We don't prove God. We testify to what we've seen and experienced in a world trying to look away and suppress the truth. Look, we got to quit trying to witness to a world on their terms. It only preaches a false gospel that they are the true God and he exists for them. Now, that doesn't mean we shouldn't try to lovingly meet people where they are. Jesus does this so well. And he always does this. This isn't void of love. In fact, this is love. Right? But it never means diluting the truth of who Jesus is in order to appease someone who thinks they sit on his throne. That's the opposite of love. That's actually the definition of condemnation. So my first takeaway this morning is redemption happens on Christ's terms, not ours, because he's God and we're not. And this may have been Nicodemus' greatest fear here. As I said, he, like many of us, would have worked very hard to be the expert in the room. Like to be the one with all the answers, he would have found solace and, and, and safety in being right. And so as an authoritative, authoritative teacher of Israel, like being told you're wrong or that you don't know what you're talking about by God himself would have been his worst fear. Like this conversation would have rattled him to his core. Like all that pride suddenly crashes into shame and guilt as deep fear and insecurity would have crept over him. I think that's what we're seeing here. Like Nicodemus would have built his entire identity around his status as the one with the answers. And here he's realizing only Jesus has the answers. One of the most liberating truths that I've come to realize, especially as a pastor, is that I don't have to have the answers. Right? That's a good thing. Because I, I, I don't have the answers. But I get to point to the one who does. My role has never been to make disciples of John Allen, nor is your role to make disciples of you. We are to point people to Jesus, even when it's difficult. Look, I got my opinions. Lord knows, I got my opinions. 
But unless those opinions are verified by God's word, they're just personal opinions. So we point to Jesus. Nothing wrong with opinion. Amen? Good. You should have opinions. Right? But they're just opinions unless they're verified by his word. That's why we preach God's word. That's why we root and ground ourselves in Christ. Look at verse 1. I mean, sorry, 14. Hello. Starting over. Verse 14, and as Moses, gosh, this is so good. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. But Jesus uses this story in the Old Testament that Nicodemus would have been extremely familiar with, but probably had no real understanding of. Right? Like the Old Testament book of Numbers 21 gives this account of how God's people were delivered from their slavery in Egypt and they faced some difficulty as God like refining their trust as his people and they're walking through the desert. Right? He's teaching them how to be children rather than slaves and it's a difficult process. He's teaching them to trust him. But in the process, they start speaking against God and against Moses. They're complaining. They're murmuring. They're saying things like, why did God even take us out of Egypt? And this is horrible. And he's so bad. And God's so bad. And so is Moses. We can't trust them. Blah, 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 blah. Right? Their words were venomous. And their critical complaining spirit spread through their group or their people like a poison. So God sent a righteous, a righteous, say righteous, God sent a righteous judgment of venomous snakes into their midst. God sent it. And they began to be bitten, poisoned, and die. The judgment was actually a perfect manifestation of their poisonous murmuring. Think about this. Think about the anxiety and the fear that these vipers would have caused. Think about the panic. Think about the anxiety of not knowing where those snakes were. Right? Every shadow, every rock around every corner lurking, slithering, prowling, poised to bite when you least expect it. You can't even sleep without one curling up next to you looking for warmth. Death around every bend. They would have been given no rest because of their judgment. It was righteous, and it was from God, and the insecurity and the anxiety would have been unbearable. Vipers everywhere, just waiting, and they deserved it. Like, you can almost imagine a woman walking by a rock and seeing a little viper coiled in the shadow as she goes and sees it in the shade of it on the other side. It's almost like the viper is just whispering, this is what you deserve. And what do you do with a viper? You don't go towards it, right? She would have been like, no, and looked away. And then maybe just stepped on another one. You avoid it to save your life, but then run right into it. Because they're unavoidable. And so many had already been bitten, and they were dying. And so this, then, uh, God then tells Moses, follow this, to make a bronze image of a snake and lift it up on a pole for all to see. And everyone who had been bitten by the venomous snakes would be healed when they turned and looked to the image of the serpent. Jesus is reminding Nicodemus of this story. Just as Nicodemus was likely dealing with his deepest insecurity and fear here, and Jesus tells him that this story was actually about 
Jesus. Like he says that just as Moses lifted the image of that viper up for all to see and be healed, so too must he, must Christ, be the Son of Man, be lifted up for all to see and be healed. You see, Israel's greatest fear in the wilderness were those snakes. They represented their righteous judgment. That was their fear of facing that. And God was saying, if you want to be healed, you've got to face your deepest fear. You must come to grips with your judgment. You must behold sin for what it is. Don't look away. Don't ignore it. Don't pretend like it doesn't matter. Don't suppress the truth. It's only going to cause more anxiety. Look and see and behold your judgment. And only then can you be healed. You see, Jesus himself is the judge. And when the guilty comes face to face with the judge, the only response is to hide And to cower and to turn away in fear. This is why Adam and Eve were hiding from God as he walked in the garden. Or maybe even to posture in pride. To react. Like, I don't care about the snakes. But pride goes before the fall. And when judgment is revealed and unavoidable, that pride is exposed for what it is, which is shame. And so just as Moses promise this is not a sermon about condemnation. Just as Moses lifted up the image of the serpent, the image of all their judgment, and that which they were most afraid of, Jesus says that he must also be lifted up. And he points Nicodemus to the cross to take it all in, to take in the full force of God's judgment upon humanity on display for all to see, because that's what the cross of Christ actually is. It's our sin, it's our failure, it's our guilt, it's our shame, it's our pride, it's our absolute inability to measure up. It's all the righteous judgment of God lurking around every corner of our lives, poured out in full strength upon Jesus. All of it on full display, lifted high for all to see. God's righteous judgment upon humanity poured out in unmitigated strength. He's telling Nicodemus to look to the cross. He's saying, don't turn away. Don't ignore it. See your sin for what it is. See what you deserve. See, your greatest fear is the judge and judgment of God. Both are at the cross. There's no greater picture of the weight and magnitude of human sin than what we see at the cross. So we need to understand that the crucifixion of Christ represents condemnation. It represents judgment. But don't look away. Look to the cross. Jesus knows that the natural response of humanity is to suppress guilt and shame and to look away and pretend like it's all okay. But deep down, we all know it's not. That's why people are so sensitive to judgment. We're petrified of it because deep down, all of humanity knows we deserve it. It's why he says in verse 18, I haven't come to condemn. I've come to save Like Everyone stands condemned already, whether you want to acknowledge it or not. He's saying Look to the cross. Face your deepest fears, not because you can handle it, but because Jesus has already handled it for you. See, the cross represents more than just condemnation. It also represents salvation. But it can't mean one without the other. So don't water it down. 
Don't sugarcoat it. Don't avoid it. Look to the cross. See the innocent and perfect Son of God crucified as the most palpable manifestation of the weight of human sin possible. See that it is horrendous. He took what we deserved. But this is the second takeaway. Don't turn away from the cross. Look to the cross and look through the cross to the resurrection. Look through the cross to the resurrection. The world looks away because they don't want to face the truth. They think it's unbearable because it is, yet Jesus and his love did not turn away from the cross. And because he endured the cross, we're able to behold it. The invitation for eternal life can only come through the cross of Christ. To behold the man of sorrows and lamb of God by his own betrayed. The sin of man and wrath of God has been on Jesus laid. Dave knows that's my favorite song. So whenever we sing it, you know you're going to get a little extra. Don't turn away. Behold your judgment. Behold the judge. Behold Jesus. And behold resurrection and salvation. Be healed and be born again. This is the gospel. God became a man and lived the life we couldn't live and died the death we deserve to die and conquered death in the grave by paving the way to eternal life through the resurrection. And it's an eternal life that starts now, not just one day when we die, but it starts now through his indwelling spirit who changes our desires, gives us a new heart, new affections. He recreates us completely. This is the spirit who secures us in his unrelenting, unconditional, never-ending, never-forsaking love, which even allows us then to see our sin for what it is and not turn away. We're not condemned by it. But that doesn't make it any less significant. Because when we see it for what it is, we're going to want nothing to do with it. I think it was John Owen, a Puritan, said, Sin never scorches so hotly as it does in light of the gospel. I was always confused by what that means until I got this principle. And yet, so what it means is is that it means it comes with extreme joy, even though it scorches us. The reality is that the deeper your sorrow is for sin, the more thankful your heart will be for God's grace. Like, and then the more, more your soul will soar with affection for him. It's that the more you see your sin, the more you see his grace and thanksgiving. It's like this. And then the farther away you are from that sin, as far as the east is from the west, because that's how good and glorious his grace is. You see that? So we don't stay down here. We live up here. But the only way you get here is when you acknowledge this and what he's done. This is the cross. This is through the cross. It's the power of conviction. It causes us to stand rather than wallow, to identify with our Savior rather than our sin, and to walk with him and to worship him as children, saved by grace alone, secured in that. This is only available through spiritual rebirth, not religion. Religion only shoves your nose in it and pushes you down there. It's why we sing, oh, that rugged cross, my salvation, where your love poured out over me. Now my soul cries out, hallelujah, praise and honor unto thee. Now my debt is paid. It's paid in full by the precious blood that my Jesus spilled. Now the curse of sin has no hold on me. 
whom the Son sets free, oh, is free indeed. You see, part of the curse of the fall way back in Genesis 3 was that all birth would happen through pain and suffering. Remember that? And so it is with spiritual birth. It's got to come through the pain and suffering of another, but that other was Jesus. Don't look away. Look to the cross and look through the cross to the resurrection and be born again. This is so important for understanding how Jesus interacts with us and how he interacts with others through us. Like he doesn't just point people to the cross. He wants to point people through the cross. It's why I don't like Catholic crucifixes. Right? You ever seen a Catholic crucifix? You know what's on a Catholic crucifix? Jesus. His body's still there. Every time I see him, I just want to shout, he's not there anymore. He's risen. Every time I see it, I'm like, no, he's not, no. Tomb empty. (laughs) He's risen. This is the final takeaway. Christ is risen, and the resurrection changes everything. Like, we're not dead in our sin. We're alive in Christ. Verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only son of God. Like I know it's painful to realize humanity stands condemned already. The coming to grips with our guilt and shame is painful. It's difficult, but it's necessary for rebirth. And just like birth, it leads to great joy when you hold the promised son. Or you're held by the promised son. It's probably more accurate. You see, when Jesus says God so loved the world in John 3.16, he's not saying this is how much God loved the world as it is. He's saying this is the way God loved the world. And the way God loved the world is by calling us to see our sin for what it is in order to be rescued from it. Remember the verse before this is about Moses lifting up that snake. God doesn't just excuse or ignore our judgment. He pays for it. But until you come to grips with the weight of it, you're never going to come to grips with the sufficiency of his grace. And you'll be running from those demonic snakes for the rest of your life. Like Nicodemus, everyone must be born again. We cannot follow enough rules. We need an entirely new heart, new desires, new affections. And and that often is what upsets our pride. Like so many people never see the power of the true gospel because they refuse to see the cross. They take a high view of humanity and a low view of God. And they refuse to accept it. They think that it's just an attempt to shame or, or control or guilt trip people. But that's because they've totally missed the power of the gospel. Look, if there's no resurrection... Like, if Jesus is still on that cross, then yes, it's just shame. It's just a guilt trip. It's just designed to make you wallow in self-pity and control people. And yes, that is exactly what man-made religion does. That's why I don't like the picture of the cross with Jesus still on it. It's just pure shame. It's like home alone, right? Like what you did, you little jerk. You know what I'm talking about? That 
That's what dead religion does. It rubs your nose in the sin in an effort to shame you into obedience. That's not Christianity. That's dead works-based religion. That's a cross without a resurrection. If your Christianity is guilt-ridden and shame-filled, like if your attitude and identity is like, woe is me, I'm just a horrible, worthless, miserable sinner, you've missed the point. Behold, he is risen. This is the good news of Jesus. It says, rejoice, O sinner, you've been set free. Right? I once was blind, but now I see. I once was lost, but now I'm found. No more shifting sand, just solid ground. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ, I'll stand. And yes, that's like a compilation of like 40 hymns. This is freedom. This is life. This is joy. And it comes through rebirth. It's not a demand to do better or work harder. Nor is it a promise that God's going to change the atmosphere around you. That's the prosperity gospel. It's false. That's the American gospel. It's false. The true gospel of Jesus Christ is that when you come to him on his terms and you receive him both as Lord and Savior, behold the cross, when you behold the resurrection, when you receive his spirit, he doesn't just change the atmosphere around you, he changes the atmosphere inside of you. This is God's ultimate interaction with humanity. Redemption doesn't come through religion. It comes through rebirth. In order to see and receive Christ for who he is, you must be born again. Let's pray.